economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today in our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. So we'd like to uh, kick off with some Old Testament today. <laughs> Thou shall not steal. <laughs> We've heard a lot of this smash and grab stuff going on in California. I thought it'd be an interesting topic to explore. So, Justin, what, what's the smash and grab policy all about, especially California, but it sounds like it's other cities as well? Well, smash and grab, there's been a large increase of crimes, which are now being called smash and grab crimes. Like a month ago, they used to just call them looting. <laughs> but now the AP put out style recommendations to say we should call these things smash and grab. So that's why you're actually seeing this term a lot more in the news. But you are seeing this in uh, large cities. So it's happening famously in San Francisco a lot right now. There, I think over the past weekend, actually, when you're you're hearing this, listeners, it's probably a month ago now, there was a gang of like 40 people that went into Union Square and just smashed a bunch of windows and grabbed a bunch of merchandise And this is happening in large cities, and it's happening often in cities that have undertaken criminal justice reform such that these people, these cities aren't prosecuting theft when it's often under $1,000 or $950. And that's on the books, meaning that that isn't a felony anymore. It would just be a misdemeanor. And not only is that not an on-the-book felony anymore, but often... In the name of criminal justice reform, the DAs who ran on criminal justice reform are not even prosecuting theft that happens that meets that threshold, that's over that that threshold anyway. So like if it's 1100, they're like, well, it's pretty close. Sure. Yeah. And this is also happening in cities that in the name of criminal justice reform have instituted like no cash bail, meaning that even when they are picked up, after, you know, if they have committed a felony, they'll be right back back out on the street. So it's kind of this storm of causal factors that have resulted in what we're seeing right now in the news, which is a rapid increase in this particular kind of theft. So criminal justice reform, overcrowding of prisons, especially disproportionately more Blacks in prison relative to whites. So we've got the the underlying structural racism type issues that have been discussed for the last couple of years. I mean, is that what we're talking about with criminal justice reform or is it, is there more to it? That structural racism issue usually is one of the ways that criminal justice reform is sold to the public. Right. Yeah. But I would even, I mean, if we're going to have this discussion, I would honestly leave race completely out of it. I'm not sure what it gets us bringing it in. Yeah, I, and, I, I just was thinking of what criminal justice reform means. I, I saw in the article just overcrowding of jails in general. We got too many people, so let's raise the threshold, which kind of makes sense in a way. I mean, if it's either that or build more prisons, let's say, and if they think dispersing the spreading the cost over 
victims <laughs> from 500 to 950 is a, is a better alternative than building more prisons or something. I don't know. Peter, what were you thinking? Yeah, it, criminal justice reform usually means some of the things that Justin mentioned. So like basically lowering the cost for either engaging in crime or being accused of engaging in crime. And so that means you don't have to be able to come up with bail to, you know, get out of jail. That's uh, one example of criminal justice reform. Lower sentences on certain crimes when you're found guilty, uh, making things misdemeanors that were felonies. You know, these are all examples of criminal justice reform, uh, one form or another of it. That doesn't mean that they're good examples of what we want criminal justice reform to me to be. But sure. a lot of times when you hear the words criminal justice reform, it means that it means less time in jail, less time in prison, nicer conditions, you're less likely to go to jail for the same crime, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I'm looking forward to teaching my spatial economics class where we talk about this. There's been a lot of studies on, you know, what's the best way to reform this? If it, Do you ter- deter crime the best by increasing the number of police officers? Do you deter crime the best by increasing the penalties so that the criminal, the rational criminal we say is, is looking at, should I do this or not? And if they do their own little cost benefit analysis, so increasing the penalties, which is, I think, the direction we took in the, what was it, the 1990s and maybe the 80s, I guess, in New York was to, and, and that's part of, the, they point to that as one of the issues of the overcrowding aspects. So there's lots of different approaches and it would be nice as an economist anyway, that we, that we do some empirical analysis of which, which one works the best. And, and there have been those sorts of studies, but they need to continue to be done. A knee-jerk reaction of just raising it to 950 and you know, that, that might be fairly short-sighted. I think a lot of what goes on in criminal justice reform is this idea that we have this a priori, meaning like before we run the experiment, we have an idea of what our prison population ought to look like. Yeah. And then we look at the prison population and we say, well, since our prison population doesn't look like that, let's let's institute some proposals to try to make our prison population look the way that we want it to. And mm-hmm. then we we pass some proposals and then we are shocked that changing the incentives results in more different behavior. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the the main thing. Uh, what would you say about that, Peter? Yeah, well, I I think where things really kind of hit here, where it becomes really important is, you know, this is an issue of economic freedom and growth. You know, in order to have a, a, a good flourishing economy, you need the you need the ability to protect property. So one way to think about what we could do if we want to stop um, smash and grabs, right, is the mayor of San Francisco could say, okay. Lowering the threshold and the punishment seems to have increased these crimes, right? I'm going to take the opposite approach. The next, so from now on, the penalty for committing burglary, even if it's under $900, let's say it's if it's over $20, the penalty is now public execution. We are going to (laughs) put anybody convicted of theft up under the guillotine, and we're going to do it in public in Union Square, just as a reminder to everybody. Yeah, I just thought halftime at the football would be a good time for something like public execution. (laughs) So, and we can probably imagine that under that kind of a regime, um, theft would go down, right? So this gets us to the question that Russ was talking about earlier, and I think that to the heart of Peter's question too, which is, look, the rule of law needs to 
people need to be able to protect property, but we want to have the optimal amount of punishment, right? Yeah. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what that might be since I take it we don't want to be publicly executing people in Union Square. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we, we have some sort of policy. I, I can't remember where it exactly comes from, if it's through tort law or otherwise, but that the crime fits the time or something, right? So that the, it's commensurate with what you did. If you, if you murdered somebody, then you might get murdered yourself with execution. But if you stole $1,000 worth of stuff, then the penalty is going to be uh, proportionately similar to what you did. Yeah, uh, so... I think one way too to to get towards the right amount, you know, like this is always difficult when we're trying to figure out like the optimal amounts because there's a lot of people, they have different values, all these things. I think the way to move us in the right direction is to uh, move us to a world where people can more safely create their own security, basically. Uh, Stores are going to be interested in protecting their stuff and they're going to have to reckon with the fact that it costs resources to do that. Yeah, I think that more and more we've moved into a world where private security is more viable. You know, this public good uh, arguments is becoming less and less relevant. I think it might be time to talk about more private security options. Yeah, because in in many ways, the the system can fail certain situations. And it's in a sense wrong for us to be so dependent on others that it, it and that's part of why we wanted to do this podcast is I started thinking, well, if they raised it to 950, then that means we're going to have to take more precautions privately to guard against $950 type offenses. And what, what does that mean? Well, unbreakable glass, maybe. I mean, they make glass that's bulletproof, so it could surely withstand a hammer or something. But like Peter's saying, that there's a cost to that, right? There's a cost to that. I, I would be perfectly happy if the state said we're not going to provide the service anymore and we're actually not going to charge you for it anymore either. Right. right? That's um, the part that they still not charge. <laughs> uh, it's not like taxes are really low in San Francisco. Right. And it's not only that. It's also that in these places, states, uh, governments are making it very hard for private individuals to police their own property. Right. Sure. So. That seems to be to be a double-edged sword. They're making, they are not protecting your property rights and they are actually going to prosecute you if you defend your property. Yeah, rights. that's that's an interesting point. And I think Peter's got something to say. Yeah, I, I've I've heard this term recently. I actually don't like it very much because I think it's kind of like a made-up thing, but it, the term anarcho-tyranny has been thrown around a lot. And that's basically well, you might wonder well, how could you have both? Well, that's when like your government both like has very strong enforcement of certain things like tax revenue collection, but allows you to be terrorized by like crime and things like that. So you're, it's not actually that strong of a state, just strong enough to make your life harder. But I, I agree with Justin. One of, the, one of the best things that could be done is if we just got state governments out of the way, if people could use their property and protect it the way they wanted to, by state governments, I, I mean federal government too, if people could just protect their property the way they wanted to, then I think a lot of these problems would go away. I think right now people are kind of afraid to protect their own property. Yeah. And I think we'd also see voluntary coalitions of, you know, a block of, of businesses working together, maybe contributing to a pot to add additional protection somehow. Again, so just self-policing or self-security to offset that, knowing that the new rule of law. So my point that if the state's going to do something, at least coming out with a clear, well-defined rule that we're not prosecuting anything of X, 
at least as a start, that then the private sector knows that they need to protect up to X or something. It's at least more transparent than some of the other things we get. If we're going to move the direction of less state policing and more private policing and security. Um, I will say, Russ, though, though I agree that like the rules should be clear, that particular law, I, I worry about in terms of a rule law perspective, because I think we should also consider the winners and losers here, because like besides criminals, you might not think that there are winners here, but there actually are, you know, who benefits from stores not being able to have items less than $950 in stock? What sort of companies would be happy with brick yeah. and mortar stores not being able to hold those items? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once you once you start thinking about that, you realize well, the problem with this specific rule, for example, is that it's not universal. It's not applying to everyone. It's actually affecting different people differently. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think you're right that the small business, when I first heard about this story, immediately kind of small business came to mind, like small mom and pop getting broken into. But then I looked at some of the pictures on the news feeds and it's more like Target and major national chains. So I think probably some of the perception is that Let's allow this rule because it's just going to be Target and they're just going to expense it out, right? They can, they can afford having some stuff stolen and this is a, uh, a, a decent redistribution of sorts uh, from big corporations to others. But uh, the opposite, I think, is true. It's going to continue to push out small businesses and continue to foster big business uh, who, who can afford those things. Big business and online business. So I think of like Amazon uh, being a big winner from something like this. Like yeah, if we're yeah, not yeah. Have brick and mortar anymore. There's one one company out there has the infrastructure to replace that. It's Amazon. Walmart's in like a far second, right? So there, there's even like that side of things that weirdly these online companies, Netflix being another, uh, really maybe even benefit from this to a certain degree. Yeah, I think uh, this looks like a good spot to cut for a break. And uh, when we come back from the second half, we'll explore more of that. And also look a little more closely at the rule of law and why that's uh, part of the Economic Freedom Index. I think that there's some more things to discuss there on why it's so important uh, in our country to have that. We'll be back in just a bit. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Gorton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. We have a high school offering now of a course that you can take uh, through Ottawa um, and earn some college credit. So we're looking for some uh, anxious high school students that want to explore some more economics and it's going to be uh, reasonably priced. Uh, I don't actually have it priced yet, so contact me later if you want to check that out and earn some college credit. That college credit will be transferable to any other university that your high school student uh, goes to, so um, give me a call if you'd like to get some more information on that. If you want other information about the Gordon Institute or Ottawa University, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right, so we're back. Maybe we'll just touch on a little bit on the, the Economic Freedom Index. So a single number is used to kind of rank countries around the world on how free they are in terms of economic freedom. 
there's five categories. Size of government is one uh, with the idea that the, the larger the role of government, the more taxes that they're taking, the less personal economic freedom you have to spend your money where you choose to want to spend it rather than a collection of, of people in the government choosing where to spend it. And the other category is rule of law, which is what we're talking about, which really includes fair and partial courts, police that show up responsibly to handle incidents and calls. Um, uh, area number three is stable money. Uh, is the government responsible with, uh, with the money supply in terms of inflation? We've seen that one being infringed on here in the United States a little bit as we are in the 6% range uh, this last month. International trade, are we free to trade with people around the globe or do we have tariffs and other trade barriers in place? And then finally, regulations, which can be like occupational licensing. Do we have to have the blessing of the government to start up a business? How easy is it to start up a business? I've heard of cases in Central and South America that it might be 30 to 180 days to get to be able to operate a business. And so how much freedom do you have to choose what you want to do? So taking all those five areas into account, today we're really focusing in on this rule of law with uh, California and some other places um, in an effort to attempt to minimize or do some criminal justice reform of simply raising up the bar. And Nate, what were you thinking that you read some stuff on victimless crime or what, how was that characterized? Uh, I think you... some people think that these are victimless crimes, but I think that it's just hurting this one, the city's sense of safety, California's maybe sense of safety. And of course it's just hurting their image. And then some people might say it's just because the poverty's bad or there's, there's a high amount of poverty, which there is. California is known to have a high amount of poverty and maybe look a little dirtier than other States. But I don't, I don't think it's that way when people are breaking into Louis Vuitton stores. I think if they're breaking into Walmart or Walgreens getting food or groceries, that makes sense. But breaking <laughs> into Louis Vuitton and taking $25,000 of purses just seems crazy to me. It's, and I think it's just motivated from the law about what we were talking earlier. That law creates it so the punishment is, is less. And so people are able to go get the stuff that they want, I guess, without too much reparations at the end of it. I think that you're right that People have been calling. I, th I think the verbiage that I've seen more often is that these are that this is nonviolent. Yeah. Uh, because, absolutely. and we saw this kind of arise during you know protests and riots that we saw even like right after the start of COVID, where things were described as nonviolent if they didn't harm people. Right, people and, to people. Yeah, which is and, crazy to me because I I just can't think of something much more violent that I wouldn't want to be around if somebody's smashing windows and whatever. I mean, there's even material things getting damaged is violence to me. But So this again was a note that was put out by the AP and how you, how these things have to be reported is that violence consists of harm done to a person, mm -hmm. uh, not done to property. Yeah. I, I think this is an important myth to dispel here. Property is really just the embodiment of someone's time. That's all it is. Like the, the only like cultivated property that you have is because you put time into something. Uh, and that's, that's true of anyone. And so like when you have like a wardrobe in your room that represents like a lot of different people's time and you've compensated for that, them for that time. And so when you destroy someone's property, you are harming them. You're stealing their time away from them, either time that they spent putting into making something or the time they spent trying to get enough money to buy something. So some people will retort to this like, well, yeah, but these aren't people. These are big corporations like they can afford to you know, do this. And sometimes and we heard this, uh, you know, a, a year back, sometimes they'll say, well, insurance will cover this. So who cares anyways? 
Russ, what you mentioned is, is very important. Like the, the difference between us and a lot of, you know, the, these developing countries that have struggled to get out of the place that they're at, it's not on taxes or monetary policy necessarily. A lot of these countries are held back by lack of rule of law. What separates the U.S. from, uh, you know, being a country that doesn't have stores anywhere within a walking distance or driving distance of you isn't, you know, that much. Like if we have theft is like something that's accepted as part of everyday life, we will lose that. You know, sometimes people get really emotional about crime, so we can move this to a different type of insurance. Let's talk about tornado insurance. Let's say you live at a place in Kansas where a tornado comes and blows down your house every other week, how many insurance companies are going to insure you? And the answer is obviously like nothing. No, no one's that stupid. Right. And so now we extend this to crime. It's like, all right, if we make theft something that happens frequently because it's okay, because it doesn't hurt anybody and insurance and all this stuff, businesses don't want to sell insurance companies specifically don't want to sell insurance to businesses that are always broken into. And companies that are always broken into and can't get insurance, they're not going to want to sell to customers. And so like this all falls apart very quickly. People take what we have for granted, but we shouldn't. This really is damage against people. It's damage against property is damage against people. It's it's disrespect and destruction of people's time. Yeah. And and to some extent, they're going to self-insure by raising their prices, right? They just have to build that into the cost of production. But if they're stealing $25,000, bucks of stuff and it happens weekly, that's going to collapse fast. There's there, you can't raise the price high enough, I guess. And, and then really the, the more you keep raising the price, the more you make it harder for a legitimate sale and, and more stealing. And so it, it's kind of this self-fulfilling, self-reinforcing type of policy. So Justin, what were, what were you thinking with purpose of punishment? I think that a lot of what motivates the attempt for criminal justice reform has to do with a certain view on what the purpose of, of jail or the purpose of punishment ought to be. And I think most people actually have two different sets of what they think the purpose of punishment ought to be. And these two conceptions of punishment actually are often in conflict. Um, so on the one hand, there's one view of punishment that says that the point of punishment is to rehabilitate the criminal, right? And to make it the case that the the purpose of punishment ought to turn the criminal from being a criminal into uh, a productive member of society, right? That that is the purpose of punishment. And so that is actually a forward-looking version of punishment. It says you give us a criminal and the purpose of punishment looks at what we need to do to get this person back to be a functioning member of society. And there's a different kind of punishment, which, or a different view of punishment, which is called the retributive view of punishment. And it says that the purpose of punishment is actually to harm the criminal, right? And it, and depending on what kind of retribution you have in mind, it's supposed to usually match the crime, but it is that the point of punishment is to look at what the criminal did and inflict some kind of harm on that criminal that is at least um, proportional to the amount of harm that they themselves committed. And on this view, it's not focused so much on what we need to do to get this person to be a functioning member of society. The point of punishment 
is to inflict a harm upon the criminal. Mm -hmm. And I think most people actually have both of these views of punishment in mind. And that is why they can be just that these, these two views actually come into conflict a lot. Yeah. And uh, Thomas Sowell comes to mind with the conflict of visions a little bit on what, what is that person? Is that, do we have this, you know, are where the institutions, the problem that caused this person to be that way. And therefore we just have to reform them and the institutions or is there original sin? And we have to just come up with more of the rational side of if the punishment's high enough, they're not going to do that bad thing. And then we get into the heat of the moment stuff and all that kind of fun things. Peter. Yeah, so my my take on this is that I'd say there there's one more though. Justin's right; these are the primary two that I talked about. The one other one is to, like to prevent future harm. Like you know, if if there was a serial killer going around killing people, I'm neither interested in in rehabilitating them nor do I think like we can even like make things just by like hurting them. But I do want them gone forever. Like I don't want them to ever be let out again because we know that people who kill dozens of people and enjoy it will continue to do that, right? And so that, to me, that's the absolute best use of punishment. But, uh, you know, when I think of sort of rehabilitating punishments, I think of children. That's my first, the place that I go. If you're a good parent, I think almost all of your punishments, if not all, should be rehabilitative. You're trying to punish to teach them not to do the bad thing again. For the most part, I don't think you should be punishing to get retribution on your children for the wrong they've done. (laughs) Maybe occasionally in instances where you have like a really violent child who like hurt another child or something like that, that might come into play. But for the most part, you want rehabilitation. I think that says something though about how useful that punishment method is. That is, I think we as a society really believe that that works when people are young and they're being formed and we have like time over their lives to teach them. But I think we all sort of accept that this method of punishments uh, or this goal of punishment rather uh, becomes less and less tenable as people become more and more developed. And so I think, you know, as we get into, you know, criminals who are older, you know, like maybe this is outside the, the teen range, things like that, committing theft and things like that. I still think there is some value in trying to rehabilitate, but I think that that value drops off pretty quickly. Uh, and I think at some point you really do have to, to hit with the, the retribution or deterrent side of the punishment would be the other side of that coin as well. Yeah, I think the data is on your side. Again, from the class that I've done, I think it shows that a lot of criminals learn how to be better criminals when they're locked up. And that their probability of reoffending is higher than otherwise. And so... I think the idea of rehabilitating or reforming a person while they're incarcerated, the evidence isn't there that that that, that has worked out well. Because I think different experiments have been done over time, uh, whether it's education in prison and you know other things. So certainly some can be reformed, but I think for the most part, on average, you know, the old adage of you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I think is what you were saying, Peter, that we have a chance maybe with the youth to take some of those tactics on, on reform as they're maturing, but at some point that well runs dry. And and I will say it can swing too far the other direction too. So I I think a lot of people are way too much in the view that we can rehabilitate everyone. And all we have to do is just try harder and use a new method and everyone will come to see the way we want them to live in the world. I think that's kind of nonsense, but it can swing too far the other way. That way it looks like if you've ever seen, you know, either I've seen the movie or read the book, or the play, I guess, Les Miserables, or, or the, the French play. 
that's the, the one of the basic elements in that story is the main character goes to jail for stealing some bread and his sentence is very heavy he's basically given this card that he has to carry the rest of his life that communicates that he's a criminal it doesn't say how minor his crime was like he, he was starving he just wanted some bread and like this is a heavy punishment and so you know that's the other side like justice can become too harsh and severe just for punishment's sake and you see that in the character of Javert. Uh, he's like the police officer who is uncompromising, who eventually kills himself because he can't understand how the the bread thief, Jean Valjean, you know, can actually be such a good man despite having committed a crime. He can't bring these grips in his head, so he kills himself. But yeah, I, I think, so I think we can swing too far in that direction, but I think we're not there right now. I think as a society, we really have moved towards rehabilitation, which I think is good. But I also think people believe it can do more than it really can. Well, and with punishment, it seems like in today's day and age, home arrest, or we could get a lot more creative about overcrowding problems and we could still keep penalties maybe where they were or whatever, or not keep raising the bar as video cameras and you see the person and facial recognition and they have a hammer in their hand. And and so in terms of getting in front of a judge and having the verdict, and now instead of putting them in jail or prison, you know, slap a home arrest thing on their ankle and and that technology continues to grow and GPS tracking, blah, blah, blah. And, and so maybe a move that direction could help as well. Let me yeah, I think I, go ahead, Justin. Why don't you go ahead? It's mine's a little uh, off topic from what I was I was gonna just continue on Russ's and, and say like a really easy way to manage this is to just get rid of the crimes that now like everybody knows are dumb. So like we actually do have victimless victimless crimes that are prosecuted. They're like drug crimes, right? Like these are, you know, crimes that are, you know, buyers and sellers coming together and they're deciding to do something. Maybe you'll ruin your life. That's a possibility. But it's obviously not got the same victim count if we wanted to do numbers or the the depth of harm that theft does of, of looting and things like this. And so, yes, we have a prison overcrowding problem. Part of that's just because we have some really stupid laws that have very severe punishments for things that cause relatively minor amounts of damage. I don't know. Justin may disagree there. No, I I do agree. I think I sound like I'm coming down pretty hard on prison reform um, and that I think that prison reform is dumb or something, but I don't think that our our prison system has a ton of problems and that, you know, the problem that, for instance, no cash bail is trying to solve is that uh, it takes way too long for you to actually get in front of a judge. So you end up being incarcerated without being found guilty first, right? And my quibble is just that I think that the ways the state is trying to do prison reform end up uh, making things actually worse. And so, uh, you know, with um, instead of not prosecuting drug crime, we are not prosecuting actual uh, what I would consider violent crime, which is uh, a smash and grab. I think that's violent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not going to stop saying it's not violent because the AP tells me not to or whatever. So I just think that there are better ways to um, prosecute. Uh, I mean, to reduce crime. It's just that we're not doing them. Um, and finally, I, because I, I can just hear some of our listeners' wheels in their heads turning when, uh, when we say things like that drug crime is a victimless crime and people can say, well, what about people they, who do drugs and then go on a smash and grab, right? Um, or who then go on and kill somebody or then go and injure people. And it's like, well, that's exactly why we have laws against violent crime. Right. right. So um, I'm not we're not saying that we shouldn't um, 
enforce laws against violent crime, we are saying, or at least I am, I don't want to put words in anybody else's mouth, that leaving the victimless crimes would yeah. be uh, we'd be better Tackling off. Tackling the violent ones will incidentally capture some of the drug ones that do the crime when they're on drugs, as opposed to the ones that just sit there and binge on Netflix while they're on drugs. We can leave those ones alone and not crowd our prisons with, with those. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about the um, child labor and we said these laws, you know, they actually, they capture, it's a blunt instrument that captures too wide of a net. It, um, it ends up outlawing a bunch of things that we don't want to outlaw. And I think that um, this is kind of similar in that what the state ends up doing is, you know, mistargeting. So it, it ends up, we are now not prosecuting smash and grabs and still putting people um, in jail for some uh, nonviolent drug crime. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I think that this is an issue that you cannot uh, throw like a, a, a wide net on it and have like a satisfactory answer. This issue does require nuance. There's no other way to handle it. And I think the nuance is pretty simple. We do need criminal justice reform for certain types of crimes. We need no bail for certain types of crimes, uh, certain types of crimes. We need no bail for, or we, we need, you know, reduced sentences for certain types of crimes, but we still need to have systems that keep violent criminals, again, including things like looting off the streets. And so like, you can have both of those things. You just have to admit nuance. You can say, all right, how about we don't require bail for criminals who are accused of selling drugs? How about no, no bail for them? Because what, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to go out there and sell more drugs. I don't know. But if someone is accused of, you know, breaking into a store and, you know, uh, stealing a bunch of stuff, like th this seems to me like there's no reason why we can't treat it differently. I don't know what that looks like, look, looks like in terms of like swiftness, but luckily if we take the nuanced approach, then we are able to move through the, the justice system more quickly, right? We can put everybody who's accused of a crime before a judge if we don't have all of these crimes that are, you know, a waste of time for our system uh, going through first. One thing I will say and, uh, is that I actually think that this might, though it looks bad when you hear the stories in the news, this might actually be a win for, for decentralization and even for local democracy, because I think that if, if we have to solve this problem with some kind of nuance, I think the only way to do that is at the local level. And I, I like the fact that we are letting some localities try out their theory of justice, right? There is a huge movement in San Francisco right now to recall Chase Abudin who is the DA who won't prosecute um, these, uh, these crimes, right? And a bunch of these people that want to recall him are people that voted for him, right? So I think there is some benefit in letting people get what they want and see the results of their policies and then change them, yeah. uh, especially rather than having these kind of policies come down nationally, right? Because then I think, I don't think that every policy works every, that, there is a policy that will work everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also certainly think that, um, you know, you, it's beneficial to let these uh, experiments play out locally rather than um, nationally. Yeah. And, I, and as a side benefit, it'll bolster credibility for economists who make these predictions on these unintended consequences, but they're not going to listen to us on the front end. Unfortunately, we're going to have to witness some of these bad outcomes before they start to believe that. <laughs> if you think people don't listen to economists, you should see what they do to philosophers. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, hey, they- I, I agree with you. I, I just want to say, I, I think that's a good place to wrap up on there, Justin, because I, I agree with you. That's the the big benefit. We We can't have like, you know, a big, like a corporate news organization tell you this is what re- criminal justice reform should look like, this specific thing. Uh, if people are putting into practice and it's falling apart, uh, I think people are going to come to better, uh, you know, solutions about what criminal justice reform looks like if they have this chance to experiment. So I agree with you. I think ultimately there's uh, some optimism here. Amazing how our podcasts tend to gravitate back towards, um, especially on issues like this, of the knowledge problem with Hayek and federalism. And let's push down power uh, to the local levels because of the knowledge problem. And, and people will probably be able to solve some of those problems all by themselves. All right. Well, hey, the Gordon Institute's going to Guatemala. And so this uh, podcast was kind of timely that one of the things that I think plagues them is the, the rule of law. And so um, Nate and I are heading down and probably, I guess, by the time this airs, uh, we'll be back. Uh, but nonetheless, we're going to do some presentations to some local people, small businesses, and just people in indigenous villages on uh, what economic freedom is and what it can look like uh, so that we can get more places in developing countries uh, embracing the ideas of economic freedom. Well, this has been a production of the Wharton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us if you like what you hear. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks. <laughs>